This is the Definitely Uncertain Podcast, brought to you by Goldwalk Capital. Each week, we look at how high net worth families can improve their lives, decisions, and investments in a deeply uncertain world. We always aim to provide practical information, even if we can't offer specific investment advice. This is a Definitely Uncertain Podcast. My name is Darren Rockman, and I'm a partner at Goldrock Capital, the more than 20-year-old multifamily office servicing high net worth families in Israel and around the world. And this is a very special episode of the podcast. This is our 100th episode. And for that 100th episode, I'm very, very pleased uh, to have my close friend and tennis partner, Andrew Goldman, uh, join us. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Darren. I have to say that I'm 100 episodes in, I actually given up hope I've ever been asked to join. But uh, delighted, delighted to be finally, here. finally, you cracked an invite. Finally, exactly. We, we were get, we were going to invite you for number fifty, but that wasn't special enough. We had to wait to hundred. There we go. I'm there truly honoured. So, um, Andrew was born in Newcastle, England. He graduated uh, from Gosforth High School and then went on to uh, complete a degree in software in software engineering uh, from Imperial College in London. Uh, he worked for Price Waterhouse and uh, then uh, moved to Israel, uh, worked for NDS in the smart card world, and then afterwards uh, an entrepreneur uh, in a number of tech businesses. Um, and then since 2008, he's headed at Semed, a software, software development company. Um, he's also one, one hell of a tennis player and very hard to beat. Um, oh, we'll, find out, we'll find out about that tomorrow morning. <laughs> exactly. Um and is also the son of the late David Goldman, who was the co-founder, CEO, and chairman of UK's most successful ever software company, Sage. And so uh, Andrew has kindly agreed uh, for the 100th episode to come and talk to us a little bit about uh, his father's journey to success, uh, his legacy, and how that impacts Andrew in his life and family. Uh, so thanks, Andrew, for joining us. Oh, my absolute pleasure. Fantastic. So, so to, to start, um, perhaps tell us a little bit about your dad's life before he founded Sage. Uh, yeah, he grew up in the Northeast, where he actually lived his, all of his life, Northeast of England. Uh, he was born and grew up in Sunderland and moved to uh, Newcastle when he married my mum, where he lived up many happy years. Uh, I think he dreamed, or possibly my grandma dreamed, that he'd be a doctor one day. But uh, due to ill health and a bad time, uh, he had to leave school early. And he went off to, as it were, almost seek his fortune, starting in various different kinds of jobs, uh, including, by the way, for a while he worked in an accounting office. He thought maybe he trained to be an accountant. Uh, no offense to some of your listeners, but I think you described that as possibly the most boring days of his entire life. But I have a feeling the knowledge gained actually became very useful later, both as a businessman and as a CEO of a company that was marketing accounting software for small businesses. In 1962, he joined Campbell uh, Graphics. It was actually at the time it was a male direct company. This is 1962. Right. Actually brought along his appointment letter, which uh, you maybe put on the screen at the end. 
And fast forward 10 years or so, it was our Candle Graphics printing. He was the managing director and um, also a 50%, you know, uh, owner. Right. So, so he went from being, went up the ladder inside of this company, Campbell Graphics, uh, which was a, a printing, basically a printing, printing shop. Printing right? company, they produce uh, quarterlies for local businesses, marketing materials. Right. Okay. So that's a very long way from uh, software and, and, and the software business. So um, talk to me about how the transition from being in this printing business to founding this software company that ends up becoming this massive success. How, how did that transition happen? It's an interesting question because all the years in the printing business, dad was always looking for a new entrepreneurial idea within the world of printing. And all these ideas had two things in common. The first thing about them was as a family, we were always promised financial results. And his favorite work term was telephone numbers. Right. And the second thing was more or less, they all failed. <laughs> the transition to software was actually purely by accident. Uh, in the late seventies, he was looking to computerize the estimating process in the printing business okay. in his own business, right? Because he saw that computers were starting to come in. Uh, we had early, uh, I mean, personal computers, there was a PC. We had a, we, we had a little pets in the house, um, which was the sort of the start of my career as a programmer. So. With his entrepreneurial spirit, he thought, this is ridiculous. We're estimating it's such a manual, laborious process. There has to be a better way. And together with a computer science student at the time at Newcastle University and an American who had previously been involved with NASA and found himself in Newcastle, the three of them together developed this estimating software for Campbell Graphics. Mm -hmm. Only later did they say, oh, wait a minute, we could actually sell this because there is nothing like it in the market. But it was never meant to replace Campbell Graphics. It was, you know, a new idea. Let's build it up on the side. Campbell's will be a perfectly viable going concern to the extent that it was. Right. So they do this print estimation business. Um, but that's not what Sage was. Sage was accounting software. So how did, how did that transition happen? So they realized that, well, if we're selling software to small businesses, maybe it'd be useful if they have accounting software to go with it. Right. And almost as a sort of a side project, they cobbled together the accounting, the first accounting packet. Of course, that, it didn't take long to realize that the market of the print for, of printing companies was X. The market of small businesses that would need accounting software was 10,000 X. Right. <laughs> Any small or even medium sized business anywhere in the world. And right. in those days, there was very little on offer. What there was was extremely expensive. Right. So, so you're they actually sold the rights to the estimated software, which had been the whole raison d'etre. They the sold the rights to that to some other printing supplier. And that brought in cash, and that cash was used to uh, invest in the accounting product. Wow. 
Wow. So what you're describing is someone in your dad who really had a vision for himself and for you know he wanted to succeed. He wanted to succeed in a big way, um, and tries and fails a whole lot of different things until finally, after you know a decade, hits on something with 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 real potential. But he does it in software. And again, you know, I, I, I was around in 1981, I was 12 years old, and we, we had the first personal computer in our home when, I think, in 1982, uh, which is about the, the time when people were starting. But, but nobody, other than, I think, playing Snake, nobody had the, the faintest idea what to do with these things. Um, you know, how did your dad, you know, make that leap, that sort of visionary leap um, at the time you know, someone who was not a computer person himself, uh, to understanding the potential here. So the short answer to the question is, is that he never saw Sage as a software company. He was a businessman who had worked in an accounting office. He had to keep accounts. He had people of varying levels of incompetence who kept books, who tended to have long lunch breaks. Right. And come back from said lunch breaks after a pint or two. And he saw, um, especially after having started the estimating, he very quickly saw, uh, the potential of what these new computers could do. And obviously not difficult to see the size of any potential market, UK and around the world. And it right. turned out. Right. So, so he has this visionary, uh, streak to him. He's got this appetite for success. And he is a business problem solver. He's starting with the market saying, there's a problem here and how do I solve it? Is that, is that, is that right? Yes. He would have described it. Uh, what is the market and what does the market need? Right. Right. Uh, now is this focus. Right. And, and this coming from doesn't have a strong business education, you know, didn't no go, education. No, no education, education. No, no MBA education. high school. As he left high school early. He, uh, right. he, he probably, had he got his, what they call in England, O-levels and A-levels, he might have applied for medical school and, and gone Sage on a completely would... different journey. Right. Uh, right. No formal education to his name. Much Nature and Light was very proud to get an honorary degree from the University of Sunderland, but that was way down the line. Wow. Okay. So, so at the time, you're about 15 years old. Okay, you're, you're living in the north of England, which was actually on the verge of going through really tumultuous change during the Thatcher years with closures of mines and unemployment and union issues and all those types of things. Um, and here's your dad off on a, on a journey. He's, he manages to sell a small business. He then reinvests all the profits into some other speculative thing. You know, What's it like at the dinner table? You know, is, 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 is this just, you know, normal operating procedure at the Goldman family? I think dad, the visionary was definitely a uh, normal operating procedure. For me personally, this was unimaginably exciting because I was a budding computer programmer. And all of a sudden dad is working in the, what I saw it as the programming business. And there was just a lot to talk about. Right. And it was very interesting. And I had summer jobs there. And I'll even, if he was going down to the office on a Sunday, I'd sort of nick in the car with him and just practice some programming on their computers, which were considerably better 
I mean, such as they were with their twin floppies, but they were still way better than <laughs> I was hacking around on at home. Amazing. Amazing. Um, but it so... really feel the risk. As you mentioned, it was the Thatcher years mm. and without any political commentary, the changes that she made were definitely felt much, much more harshly in the North than everyone felt in the South. So the Northeast in particular bore the brunt. I don't think we really sort of thought through the implications of what would happen if this all went four legs in the air, although I'm sure my mum and dad did. Right, right. But as, 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 as kids, you were insulated from the risk and just all the excitement. Yes. Yeah, you could say that. Right. Amazing. Um, in those early years, what, what would you say were some of the key decisions that your dad made that ultimately led to the massive success that Sage became? The one really big thing which sticks out in my mind was the launch of the Amstrad PCW which was a word processing machine. So it was very cheap. It was a major disruptor for software up until then it had been expensive. And here you were just buying a box. It came with other bits and pieces. I think you get, get an, um, a spreadsheet package for it possibly. Right. And the world saw the world, the people who were at that point interested in computing business, the world saw this huge disruptor word processing machine. And dad and his fellow co-founders and executives immediately saw that this was actually a computer upon which you could run accounting software. And there's going to be tens of thousands of these sitting around in offices and homes. And this would be the moment to hit that market with some very cheap, but good accounting software. Okay. So, so it the, was almost the Amstrad, like on a dime. Right. So, so the Amstrad was a was sold as a word processing machine, not as a computer, right? It was, it was, it was there to do what you would do today on Microsoft Word, right? You know, write documents. And then, and then your dad and his partners uh, see this as an opportunity actually to sell software that would work on the Amstrad, which would provide accounting to small businesses. And the advantage was that the Amstrad was super cheap, uh, at least, you know, by comparison to other computers and therefore affordable also to a small business. Right. So, so what do they do? They, they, they rewrite the software for an Amstrad? Uh, well, it's actually a good question. They had tried uh, other platforms that had shown promise and fail. And I mean, anybody who's listening to this under the age of 50 will not have heard of CPM. CPM was a... Um, it was the operating system that ran on computers before Microsoft brought out DOS and Microsoft more or less took over the world. Right. And they had a version kicking around of their accounting fleets on CPN. And they realized that the Amstrad, or one of their technical people realized the Amstrad underneath the word processor, et cetera, uh, Amstrad were gone cheap, obviously, it was running on CPM. Right. And nobody, even, even at that stage, nobody in the world had stuff written, ready to go for CPM. So they literally rushed back from this exhibition where they'd seen this and dusted down the old CPM code or whatever floppy disks it was sitting on. And it needed a bit of ad adapting and to be installed, et cetera, et cetera. But they, they turned it around very quickly and were good to wow. go. Okay, so, so what you're describing is 
um, firstly, failure, right? They're, they're trying it on all different platforms. You know, it's not really taking off at that point in time. It's sort of, you know, they've got some sales. The orders coming in by post. They open the mail. Oh, five orders. <laughs> okay, right. Okay. And then, and then this piece of technology comes along, which suddenly opens the gates. But, you know, it's a, it's a mixture of a little bit of luck and a lot of, and, and a lot of foresight because they just happen to have, you know, something which is almost ready, but then they realize the opportunity of it, rush, redo it, and then launch it so that they can ride this wave that the Amstrad then created. So definitely a lot of the opportunity or get the opportunity. Uh, it was more building a plan and executing on that plan perfectly. And I even, there's a famous picture of the founders and somebody actually painted this. This was the strategy meeting where they, where they, um, planned and they decided that the way they were going to do this was not directly selling to customers, that the only way this was going to work was to sell to software resellers uh -huh. and their marketing efforts were almost exclusively targeted to other companies that were going to resell. And it started with resellers. And then they had in England the term VAR, a value added reseller. Then right. later on down, you have these super bars. But so they stopped they stop, the, stop the, they stop the, the mail in sales. That, 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 that ends. And then they decide that they're going to go through a channel. And, and then and the exhibitions they went to, and then the marketing dollars they paid for advertising in newspapers. Uh, it was all directed, uh, I should say marketing pounds, shouldn't I? It was all directed towards, <laughs> uh, these resellers. Right. Wow. So okay. It was not only spotting the opportunity, it was building the plan, executing on it perfectly. Right. And, and, uh, and that was the smarts to do that. Right. And, th and that was your dad's, that, that was where he really shone, if I understood, which was, you know, th this, this in somehow natural inherent marketing ability and, and, yes. and, and, and strategic. Marketing was always his first love and he, he was totally in his element in, in, in this job and in these years. Right. And how, how big was, was Sage at this point? Now, you know, we're talking about before it was floated on the London Stock Exchange, but how, how many people were working there? It's hard to say. Before the Amstrad thing hit, it couldn't be any more than... 20, 30, I hard to okay. remember. It, it, uh, I was out of the house for a year between 1985 and 1986. Uh, I was actually out of the country for a year. And when I came back, it all grown exponentially. But they, they built a whole uh, phone support system around the sales because, you know, buying accounting software, as you can appreciate, is not the same as just learning about what processor and you start to type. Yeah, wow. Accounting has very serious financial and business implications. So there was always anybody who installed Sage had somebody in the office in Newcastle at the end of the phone that they could call up and they could talk them through. Right. Which by the way, built an enormous revenue stream for the company because everybody who bought the software signed on. It was a, it was a very clever idea. It was like a 90 day free trial. Mm -hmm. We need the standing order now. Everybody right. signed on. Nobody's going to Roll out right, without you. support. In most cases, people don't have a computer before. Right. So they and, signed and, in, sent in the standing order, and they had, had nice days free support. Right. And these standing orders just accumulated by right. the 10,000. Right. And, and didn't they also sell paper? So fast forward, 
towards point towards which my dad had to retire through ill health. Um, it's a good question because the support side of the revenue stream, they're always looking for new revenue streams in addition to right. the actual software and selling stationery to all these customers was again, easy money because everybody needed paper for invoices and the payroll, etc. And then my dog got the idea, well, you know what? Maybe we will customize the stationery for them. Mm. And of course, printing like had always been his first love. So they actually, right. it was unbelievably successful. And he had in the, um, well, they'd moved office a few times. In this particular new office, they had a warehouse next door and they actually put in printing presses, the same as what they had in Campbell <laughs> Graphics. And wow. nothing gave him more pride. When I came back from London, wherever I'd be, he takes me in there to show me. And uh, it was like being back at Campbell's. How funny. Check so so, so, so the, the circle closes, right? You know, start with printing him, into software. This would be the perfect example of Doug saying, well, what do our customers need? Right. So right. it all, I think, quite funny. It, might, it was actually just fitted into a very serious pattern that been going on. This is like 90s, been going on for, you know, 10, 15 years. Of just identifying customer requirements yeah. and then being there for them. Exactly. So uh, we, we, we're going to scroll back a bit because we, we sort of got ahead of ourselves. So 1989, yeah. um, your dad floats Sage on the London Stock Exchange. And, and for those that, that don't know, um, Sage remains uh, the premier software company on the London Stock Exchange um, and is the largest software company in the UK uh, even today. Um, and, and that brought him both... Uh, fame, um, and financial success, um, way beyond anything that, um, that you, the family he had ever experienced before. Um, tell me a little bit about that and particularly tell me how that changed your dad. It's a very, very good question. The short answer is mom and dad lived in the same house. He sat in the same chair in the synagogue where we worship. He had the same personality. We're going to talk about his personality. Um, he was a very sort of naturally humble, modest person before, and that certainly didn't change. Um, growing up, I would say, not that it really affected our upbringing, but we didn't particularly have long-term financial security. So I think that was a huge milestone an achievement for, for mum and dad to sort of be at that point that they achieved that they could grow old with that with that done. Although I mean he one external way you would have known that he was successful was in his he loved his Jaguar. Right. And I think he'd always dreamed that one day he'd get to the point that he'd be driving a Jaguar. And um then along came the Jaguar with uh, and years down the line, the Aston. Right. So I would say that'd be the one major external giveaway of all this success. Cause just to talk to him, you would never really have known. Right. Uh, my parents enjoyed lots of nice holidays as well, but that's fine. I think it would appear that, uh, I got the love of cars gene. The reasons that are still very baffling to me. Daniel is driving around in a Skoda. 
Um, you you mentioned his personality. You know, yes. What 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 type of person? What, what type of person was he? You, you said he was modest, but he, he, he was a you know, picture. He was very modest. Um, uh, he was very quiet with it. Um, humble. Uh, loved nothing more to read his magazines and listen to music. He loved desserts. Hmm. Has to be said. And and it, and it worked. Uh, but you knew he was. He, you, you were never in any mistake. That he had a vision. Uh, I don't right. think. I think his his employees were never in any doubt that this was a man with a vision. And uh, as was becoming evident, he knew how to make that vision uh, turn that vision to practice. Right. You know, it's interesting that you say that he was humble because lots of people that have drive that have this sort of you know hunger for success. Um, it doesn't always go with modesty, but you say with your dad. Does it, it not always go on with, with modesty? Oh, uh, right. How did that combination work? You know, he's he's you know hungry for success. He's you know got a big vision, but yet personally modest. I think he saw himself as a family man who was you know had, had a vision for his business. I think he was a family man. Uh, he was a synagogue man. He was very committed to his community. He did a lot of voluntary work, uh, in particular for uh, the local school and before that for the synagogue itself. So I, I, think, I think those were his main core values. Right. Kept him grounded. Uh, and education and uh, making sure that Daniel and I, you know, had an education that could equip ourselves to go out into the world. The education that he never had. Right. Right. Um, now, famously, your dad was not much of a computer user, um, and maybe I'm somewhat understating that, right? Well, if you asked him that question, he would say that is irrelevant. Right. As I said before, Sage was a marketing company. Right. Uh, he went back this morning, um, just to prepare for this call, and I actually looked at, um, an interview you'd given onto television. He said these very words. This is a marketing company. We are here to build products that our customers need. It, it might just as well have been the latest mention in Nappy going out and going out the door right. in lorries every night. Right. But, but nevertheless, you know, when, as, as anybody that's been involved as you have and, and as I have in um, the process of, of developing and, and selling software, um, you know, an understanding of the bits and bytes is, is important because otherwise you're at the mercy of the tech guys who, you know, will tell you whatever stories that tech guys will tell you. Um, how did he handle that? How did he manage to bridge that gap? You know, where he didn't I really have a have... little feeling that he understood these things a bit more than he was willing to let on. <laughs> right. And... I have examples of where he will, you, you put a computer in front of him and he was, let's see, but I think he understood outside of that. I think he understood the process that was involved. And there were not many times, but there was a couple of times when things hadn't gone so well in the development of a new product or a new range. And he would roll up his sleeves and get in on the meetings. Mm. And just find out what was going on and who, where the failure point was and what are we going to do and who's going to do what. 
Right. Right. So he 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 knew how to manage and and he knew how to identify the the sort yes. of core you know, I think so. decision points. Right. And and then of course Sage then goes on. Um it, it moves or breaks out of the confines of the United Kingdom, which obviously was a was a huge market even on itself, and starts to, to move international. So so tell us a little bit about about that. Uh, yeah, they tried with relative success selling their own software overseas. I think they very quickly realized that with the, uh, different jurisdictions in accounting, it was always going to be a challenge. Hmm. So they expanded by acquisition. Right. Um, they did it aggressively. They bought companies in America and Europe, France, Germany, Spain. I'm sure if you look on the same website. Uh, you probably find a whole list, right? Now, now famously, buying companies uh, but, is it, and is they it, sort of developed almost the process of applying their way they run the business these companies that they bought because they prided themselves on keeping very high margins. Because mm. one thing that my dad did understand is there is a great deal of a manufacturing cost copying a piece of software onto a floppy disk, right? For him, it was very important to not be wasteful and get the benefit of that and run the company with very good margins. And that's something he was very much on top of. So they'd go to other companies that they were buying or were about to buy, and you'd see these horror shows of people doing more or less the same thing as them, but with dramatically worse margins. So they, they could sort of buy a company and then by applying their own techniques or whatever it was they were doing to keep margins low, uh, all of a sudden, increase the value of these companies bought dramatically. Right, and and they were able to do this despite the fact that they were working in very different jurisdictions. Very well, that's different why countries. they bought companies, acquired companies, as opposed to trying to set it themselves. Right, but there there were no. there were cultural differences, right? You know, you go to Germany, you go to France, yeah. you go to South France, Africa. France, they discovered there were very cultural differences, huge differences in social law. They, they were never going to succeed on their own, but they. Right. So they did succeed by buying companies that were attempting to do what they were doing. So your dad retires as chairman of Sage in 1997, and he dies very young um, in 1999 after a, a long battle with cancer. When, when you look back at your dad as a father, um, as an entrepreneur, as a businessman, um, what legacy did he leave you? That's an excellent question I thought about. One legacy, not, not the legacy, one legacy is um, he loved humor. And I remember the day that Camel Graphics had to close due to an industrial dispute, which was a long story in of itself. And imagine the scene in our morning room as he sort of picks up his briefcase to go to the door. One of us, I can't remember who, make, made a joke and we had a laugh. And my dad says, it doesn't matter what they do, we're never going to lose our sense of humor. And maybe it's like a northern thing. I think that's also how he led. He led with a smile, with a joke, with a chuckle. So I think that's an important part of, certainly as a father, and I think also as a business manager of who he was. I think the legacy, I think everybody who asked this question to might give you a different answer. For me personally, I would say he left a legacy that he felt very responsible to... Um, any, anybody who needed help. And I don't just mean financial help, although he was very generous. 
but he felt very responsible to help whatever he can. And it manifested itself in lots of ways. He hired uh, quite a few people at Sage who weren't necessarily qualified. Mm. And they'd start by packing boxes. But he would say, show your potential, you're going to move up. And there's at least two that I know of today. One is quite senior in business development. And one is head of uh, Sage Cloud Services. And they remember dad and they remember that today you can talk to them. They remember being hired by dad and are still grateful for the chance he gave them. So for me, um, I think that's his biggest legacy of, and, and the belief that everybody on this planet should be given an education and an opportunity if they got the, uh, if they're willing and they have the know-how, mm. give it the opportunity to make something of themselves. Wow. Um, your family, um, decided to endow two chairs, uh, in your father's name, um, right. one at the university, at the Newcastle university and the other at, uh, the Hebrew university in Jerusalem. Um, why did the family choose to publicly commemorate your dad with, with those, uh, chairs? So this has been a process that, uh, was largely driven by mum, she felt right. The first of all, the one in Newcastle had been going 20 years. The one in Jerusalem is brand new. She felt very strongly that dad had lived his whole life in the Northeast. He built a business in the Northeast. He felt very connected and proud of his Northeast roots. So for her, it was, um, an obvious thing to do something that, um, he would have very much appreciated. So it's in the business school and it's the chair of entrepreneurship. Right. And with a view to the business school connecting with local businesses, which they have, especially mm. by they have the, you know, the visiting David Goldberg, who is usually somebody who's come from industry. Right. So she felt very strongly this would be, um, the perfect way to remember him. And now that she lives in Israel, we've almost repeated the dose here because I think we could all agree that had dad lived long enough, he would have definitely, without any question, bought a home here because he loved Israel and because he didn't want to have been near his children and his grandchildren. So now that mum is living here, she's sort of continued. So once again, uh, we've chosen business school in the Hebrew University. And um, very topically, Ben Eid is in the uh, field of data sciences and artificial intelligence. Right. I imagine everybody who's listening to, listening to this would have at least heard those two words about six months. Well, anybody that listened to the previous podcast would have uh, heard the David Goldman professor at, at Newcastle University talk about uh, artificial intelligence. So if you haven't listened to that episode, uh, you, you can check it out. I look forward to hearing that. Okay. But I know the two David Goldman professors are now having long chats right. with each other about entrepreneurship and artificial intelligence. Wow. Uh, they are both Fantastic. way more intelligent than me, but... <laughs> But one hopefully day, they understand each other. About what they're talking about. <laughs> Indeed. Um, so to wrap up, you, you're a father of three, um, and uh, please God, soon to be a grandfather as well. Though I you know, shouldn't shouldn't, uh, shouldn't give away any spoilers. Um, how do you transmit your dad's values um, to the next generation of the family? My main mo is personal example. I think that's the only way to go. Um, do what you have to do. 
do it all without a fuss. Uh, I think one thing I learned from my dad is do things because you have to do them, don't look for recognition. And I see that all the girls out, you know, they, they all just get on with it. Fantastic. Um, that's been amazing. Uh, really, uh, it's, it's been, been a lot of fun. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I really appreciate it. And, um, I, and you know, it's a, it's an amazing story and an enlightening story and, and an inspirational story as well. Uh, so thank, thank you for you. sharing. Um, and thank you everybody for listening. Uh, and I can't promise that all of the podcasts will be as, um, wow, wow, that this has been quite, you know, I, I'm, I'm still trying to absorb all this, um, as good as this one, but we'll try. Uh, so look out for more podcasts uh, coming your way soon. Thank you, Andrew Goldman. And uh, thanks everybody. Button. Okay. Bye-bye.